Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On a Christmas family ski trip a few years ago, I got hit with the most awful putrid smell coming straight from my daughter, Florence. She was four years old at the time. And as parents, you develop a keen sense of smell for things like wet diapers or throat infection breath or old lunchbox that got left under the seat in the car. Those had become familiar smells, but this was a new smell and it stumped me. For a moment, I thought it might just be me smelling it until my worst nightmare as a mom became a reality. I heard a group of kids at the indoor resort pool talking about the little smelly girl. Immediately, I began Googling what to do if your kid smells. And it wasn't her armpits. It wasn't her pants. The strong, egg-spoilt smell seemed to be coming from her face, and I couldn't for the life of me figure out its origins. My web MD searches made me consider an ear infection. But as parents, if you've ever had a kid with an ear infection, you know exactly what those symptoms look like and oddly smell like. I hugged my little girl, took a deep, stinky breath through my nose, and decided to accept my fate of mothering a stinky kid and raising her to be as loved as any good-smelling one. A week later, after the new year, we found ourselves back at home and back into our daily routine. At four, my daughter loved to accompany me each morning while I put my makeup on for the day. 
playing around with my brushes, she suddenly looked up at me with a gasp of realization. (gasps) Like when you finally remember where you left your car keys after placing them there so you wouldn't forget where they were, but forgot where they were anyway. (gasps) Gasp. Mommy, she said, there's a pom-pom in my nose. They say kids say the darndest things, and it's true. What the hell was she talking about? Uh, what, sweetie? She proceeded to explain herself like she was at a dinner party recounting a hilarious story over everyone's second bottle of wine. You see, at school, I thought it would be funny to put a pom-pom up my nose when we were making art. So I put a pom-pom up my nose. It was funny, but it got stuck and I didn't want to get in trouble. So I forgot to tell anyone. But I have a pom-pom up my nose. I want to take a second to clarify two important parts of this story. One, as a DIY crafter, I knew what pom-poms she was referring to. But for those who don't frequent a Jones or a Michaels, pom-poms are generally tiny fluffy balls that range in size from roly-poly sizes to marble sizes to mozzarella ball sizes. They get glued on a ton of preschool art projects that end up straight in the garbage. The second thing I'd like to clarify is that my daughter had not been in school for three weeks because she'd been on holiday break, which means if there was said pom-pom upset nose, it had been there for a while. I suddenly started to believe this story when my questions were answered quickly and convincingly. It's a brown pom-pom this big, roly-poly size, up this side of my nose, right side. I can't believe I forgot, she laughed. An hour later, she was repeating this exact same hilarious story to our pediatrician. Her pediatrician confirmed she was telling the truth. There was a brown pom-pom stuck deep inside of her right nostril. He also confirmed it's where the sickening smell had been coming from. How long has it been up there, you think? Maybe a couple days, a week? (laughs) Well, more like, I don't know, around... uh, Maybe three weeks? Yeah, it's it's been up there three weeks. That pom-pom made a home for itself and didn't budge while my four-year-old jumped on her bed, went snow skiing in the mountains, blew her nose daily, opened Christmas presents, celebrated New Year's, and even joined her while she swam. It was so far up her nasal canal, it had become embedded. So our pediatrician was now sending us to a pediatric ENT specialist to properly remove the pom-pom. Another hour later, me and my reeking child found ourselves recounting the story again to a pediatric ENT and his nurse. How does the pom-pom come out? My four-year-old asked, beating me to the punch. The doctor abruptly took on the appearance of Edward Scissorhands as he pulled out the longest tweezers I'd ever seen and told her, well, I'm going to use these Stick them up your nose and take it out. The tone went from comedy to horror movie really quick. These are the moments the classic parenting books don't prepare you for. This was exactly three months before words like COVID or global pandemic would be a part of our regular vocabulary. I'm aware that now there are tons of internet options for calming a child before placing something uncomfortably up their nose. But in January of 2020, it was not a common problem. To calm my daughter, I found myself saying things like, this will be fun, and it's gonna feel like a tickle and a sneeze. 
even at four, she could see right through my bullshit. She jerked her head away in fear and began to cry. She has to hold still, said Dr. Scissorhands. And don't you just love when a pediatric medical professional tells you your child has to hold still? Dr. Scissorhands ran out of patience and decided to just speed things up by bringing in the suction tool. If she couldn't hold still to tweeze out the pom-pom, then he'd have to suction it out with a nasal vacuum. Now, if Florence didn't like Dr. Scissorhands, she hated Dr. Vacuum. Dr. Vacuum tried to make her laugh by demonstrating the suction tool on my t-shirt and my arm to show her that it doesn't hurt. But Florence saw right through his bullshit too and knew that vacuuming a t-shirt or mommy's arm skin was not the same thing as suctioning out a pom-pom from her nose. She cried harder and she screamed, no, please don't do this to me. Just thrashing and kicking at the doctor and at the nurse. I held her while she sobbed in my arms. I was telling her to be brave, but I realized that I was just as terrified as she was. I was ready to walk out of that office and just accept our new life as mother and stinky pom-pom nose daughter. But the doctor began to explain the dangers of the pom-pom staying in her nose and the infection just getting worse. It was clear what had to be done. And the only way to suction the pom-pom out safely would be if my daughter was still. And in order for that to happen, we would have to physically pin her down. And I hated myself for what we were about to do. Florence sat on my lap facing outward. The nurse ordered me to bear hug her arms down while two different nurses held down her legs and my daughter began screaming. No, mommy, please don't do this. Please don't do this. And another nurse comes up behind us and begins to hold her head in place so that the doctor can begin. And as soon as the suctioning started, blood began to fill the tube. She began coughing and choking on her blood, which turned into screaming. And then I found myself screaming. And then she cried. And then I cried. And suddenly we were both screaming and crying. Please don't do this. Stop. Stop. I'm sorry. While this medical staff kept telling us to just keep it down. And after what felt like an eternity, the pom-pom finally dislodged and came out. The nurses released her limbs so that Florence was able to jump around into my arms and we just rocked and we cried. Our hands and our arms and our clothes just splattered with my four-year-old's blood. The doctors and the nurses finally left to give us a moment. That moment is what helped me understand as a parent that while I may hurt when she hurts, I can cry when she cries. But I can't take the pain away from her. If something scary happens because of the choices she makes when I'm not around, or if something scary happens because this is life and to no fault of our own life can be scary, in that moment I realized as her mommy, I can't magically make it unscary. There is no way to write this chapter for a parenting book. You just inevitably experience it. The doctor brought Florence her bloodied pom-pom in a tiny to-go container, a souvenir for the road, if you will. Leaving, we walked silently hand-in-hand hand into the elevator. A man caught the door in the last minute to join us for the ride down, and curiously, he looked at us. 
there were blood stains <laughs> trickled down my white button up shirt. Florence also had blood on her shirt, along with a few dried smudges on her face, her hair a mess, her free hand holding a tiny plastic container. Dentist? he asked. Pom pom up the nose, I replied. We left the hospital that day a little wiser and smelling a lot better. Today's guest is Mary Laura Philpot, nationally best-selling author of I Miss You When I Blink and Bomb Shelter. Today we're talking about her latest book, Bomb Shelter, and her process of writing essays and memoirs that examine the overlap and the profound in everyday life. Enjoy. They're amazing, and also they like they save lives. And, oh, they've saved my life. Like, not actually, but the, the you know, the destruction that I, I saw happening in my head of what was about to happen to me whenever yes. a tornado would just spring up. I Nashville weather effects, the second I moved to Nashville, everyone was like, are you on Twitter? And I'm like, not really. And they're like, well, you have to be right. because of these guys. For um, your own well-being, you have to be. For your own be. safety and well-being, yes. Yes. It is, I love their tweets. They're so useful. And I also love their tweets because every now and then they write about um, mental health because I think yeah. they feel the weight of this responsibility that people are like following their Twitter to find out, like, should I go in my basement or am I going to get blown away? And they feel that weight and they deal with it. And it's it's like a multi-layered thing going on there that they're doing. Yeah. And it's just these three dudes on this Twitter handle who basically you're able to, you know that you know that shit's going down if they go live. Like yes. if they're alive on YouTube, <laughs> it means get, get in your the phones basement. out, get in the basement, get your bicycle helmet on right. and your panic whistle in case you get buried under everything and you need to blow your whistle like Kate Winslet and Titanic so that they right. can come and find and rescue you. Um, but I love these guys so much to the point where even a girlfriend of mine here who also loves them, we exchange like their merch, like we're even buying their merch at this point. But I did also didn't realize that tornadoes were such a thing until I moved here to Tennessee. They're a thing in Tennessee for yes. real. Yeah, and sorry. My <laughs> issue with them, <laughs> if I could speak to like the, the tornado committee or God, maybe or right. goddess speak or to the Oprah, manager whoever invented these tornadoes. Um, if I could just speak to them and say, like, one, how dare you? Because there is no warning. We have no idea no. how these things work. I, I've truly become obsessed with them since moving here. But that that's the thing. I grew up in Florida where you could see the storm coming. Yeah. You could see it coming. Or even in California, you don't know when the big earthquake is going to hit, but there's just a bunch of little ones. Mm-hmm. Where there's no little tornadoes. There's no. A, You're having no. a rainstorm and maybe there's a tornado coming and maybe there's not. And if there is, you'll find out one minute before it comes for you. Yes. It's, yes. it's wild. Yes. And there's <laughs> a couple Tennessee. other. <laughs> welcome to Tennessee. But there's also a few other, you know, thematic you know, elements of that trajectory of just here it is, you're going to find out a minute before it happens. And now you're just going to have to deal with it. And one I think we can all relate to um, was COVID. You know, it just was it went from ha ha, what's going on to just overnight. It felt like the entire like I, I felt like my entire world changed. Right. It went from like a like an interesting international news story to boom, lockdown. Boom lockdown. And then I found out, boom, boom, I was pregnant. So it was boom, lockdown, baby. Oh my. You're you're like internally locked down. Internally locked down. 
Um, and then the the third element of this, you know, there's tornadoes, then there was COVID. And then another element that I've really just had to accept that this is another part of life where you just one minute, it is one way. And the next minute, everything is different is when you are a parent. Oh when gosh, you're a parent, yes. everything changes and and you get reminded of this so often. And I was so struck by this also by reading your latest book, Bomb Shelter, because you open, obviously, you know, you this collection of essays with a very traumatic event that happened also to you because you are the parent of your mm-hmm. son, but something that happened to your son. And it yeah. just struck me because that is it doesn't matter that this the scale of which, you know, it, ha- it can happen when you see your child in distress mm-hmm. and when it's the first time when you know that there's no immediate Band-Aid you can put on it and you just are having to deal with it. And yeah. a minute before, it was not something you were having to deal right. with. So I, I don't want to share your story for you. I'd love if you could share with our <laughs> listeners. Well, you're doing it actually very context. well. I, you're welcome to. No, you're right, though. That's kind of how parenthood goes. Is There's that before and after of like life before you're a parent. And then boom, you become a parent and everything is different. But then those boom moments keep coming, much like our Tennessee tornadoes, with no warning. Sometimes a little warning, but sometimes no warning. And the what you're talking about at the beginning of, of this book, at the beginning of Bomb Shelter, was um, my teenage son's first epileptic seizure, which we did not see coming. He did not see coming. We did not see coming. And it was one of those moments that is just always going to be a flashbulb or a series of flashbulb memories in my head of, of finding him on the floor at 4 a.m. in the bathroom. I got up to investigate, what is this sound I'm hearing? And the sound was the sound of his body hitting the floor again and again and again because he was seizing. The sight of that, um, the, the, I always remember the sight of my fingers pushing the buttons 911 on the phone because I'd never done it before. I'd never had to call 911. And I will always remember what that looked like, 911. The sound of the guys, the ambulance guys, <laughs> EMTs, they don't call them ambulance guys, but the EMTs <laughs> stomping up our stairs to come get him. Like there's so much about that moment that's burned into my head forever. And the book is not about that. That's just sort of the incidents, the, the incident that opens it. It's about being at a phase of life, which I am right now because I am, I think I can firmly and confidently say I am middle-aged. I'm late 40s. Um, but moments like this come along a lot where it feels like everything is stable in life, and then things just begin to destabilize. And it's like the ground has turned to sand under your feet. So this book is about that feeling as a whole and that phase of life as a whole where it's like, whoa, everything is changing. How do I find my way back? Or not back, maybe forward. How do I find my way to some kind of feeling of stability or some kind of feeling of, if not control, because we never have that, at least peace and equilibrium. And so that that moment that I began the book with, to me, was the perfect opener because it was like, boy, is that something that's going to turn life upside down is finding out your child is having a health crisis. And now what do I do? There's nothing you can do in that moment to take it away. Right. Or you have to manage it second by second. There's no magic. You can't be like, oh, let's have this happen to me instead, which is, of course, that magical thinking parental instinct of like, I I would like to take this for me. I don't want it to be happening to you. Let me have it happen to me. Can't do that. So much of the magical things my brain suggests are impossible. What are some of the magical things? Oh, my gosh. I would like to have control over the speed that time 
moves. Like I'd like to be able to slow it down sometimes and speed it up sometimes. I would like to have a time machine because there are so many phases of life that at the time felt so intense. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like I need to get past this right now. Like, I mean, you know, when you've got an infant and you are not sleeping and it feels like every day is 73 hours long Mm -hmm. and you start going, if I could just make it to the next time I get to sleep, you wish away time. Um, Moments in jobs I've had before, like really intense professional seasons of life where I've just thought, oh, if I can just make it to six months from now. There have been times where I've wished time away. And now I kind of wish I could go back to a couple of those times. I think I could handle anything if I just had a time machine and I could just bounce back and forth to different time periods. Sadly, no scientists have figured that out yet. So I have not been given the time machine I so desperately crave. (laughs) Do you think that an element of that is, you know, the positive thing I'm being through those periods of time is is making peace with the quicksand? In a way, like oh, realizing because that's what I feel like I, I, I in my 20s, it's kind of like just figuring it all out. You know, mm-hmm. I think we're all just figuring it all out. Mm-hmm. And in your 30s, you really f- like I have felt I had this uh, this idea and this thought that, OK, this is the, this is the chapter where I just have it understood. Right. Like I get it now. <laughs> I <laughs> I get how this works. Like now I just put it all in cement uh-huh. and this is just who I am. I Done. know myself. I know how to walk <laughs> through life. I've made all the tough decisions that I'm ever going to have to make. And now I just mm-hmm. to e- get to enjoy it. Right. And part of that has made me also want to control everything. So then I feel like I understand it and I know it. And when everything, you know, changes in an instant Mm -hmm. and you realize, oh, I never, I I was never in control. control. I never did. And maybe that is just kind of this made up thought that I either created myself or have been fed through social media and the way that the ways that we compare ourselves to others and and take in information now. Um, and, or it's just the it's just a normal trajectory of the lessons that you learn, you know, in your 30s. I have no idea. I think it I mean, I think you're right. I think it is a normal trajectory. And it's also so many life lessons are are iterative, I find. Like I learn it and then I have this wonderful illusion of of like you said, being done, <laughs> did it. Now I know how everything works. And I enjoy that little blessing of of ridiculousness for a while before it hits me again that, oh no. You don't know how everything works. There is no equilibrium. There is no control. I have to learn that again and again and again. I learned it in my 20s. I learned it in my 30s. Here I am learning it again in my 40s. I slip into old habits every few years where I get cocky about what my capabilities are as a human being. Like if I just do everything right, if I love everybody enough and I, um, you know, follow all the wise productivity rules for my work and I feed everybody the healthy things in my house, you know, if I do everything right, then everything in the world is going to be smooth. Everyone I love will be safe. Everything will go well. It's so, you know, and I can say this about myself with self-deprecating humor. It's so cocky. It's so arrogant to think that I have that much control. Like I am keeping the planes in the air with my mind just by worrying about everything enough. It's not how it works. But I do go through it again and again. I, I come to some peace with like, okay, 
That's not really how it works. I'm so silly. I'm not that powerful. You know, I've got to be humble and accept the fact that things come and go and life is unpredictable. And then a few years later, there I am again going, oh, boy, do I have everything figured out now. Now I'm finally cooked. I think I think if I make it to to being elderly, I will probably be 84 years old going, oh, now I know what I'm doing. And then I'll turn 85 and go, oh, no, I didn't. Yeah. But the more like the more. To your, your question of do I ever find peace with the shifting sands, the more I remind myself that I don't have control, I do feel more peace. But I'm mm. like, you know what? You, you can't control everything. It calms me down. I think that's the point of meditation. I've never gotten good at meditation, but I think that's one of the points. It's like accepting the limitations of our power and our control and being peaceful with it. Yeah, I liked your essay on meditation. Which was just your internal monologue <laughs> while you're meditating my with your guided meditation. Yes, because I, I've every person, even my, I was in therapy yesterday, and my therapist was like, "You know what I'm going to ask you," and I was like, "Don't, don't ask. I know what you're going to ask me, and no, sir, I do not meditate." And he's like, "But it would be, and I know it'd be so good for me. It would be great for me. It's what I need to do, and it's why it will help me fall asleep at night because I now am like struggling with a, oh, whatever so form, minor form of insomnia at this point. And I'm like, I know I it would be good for me, but I don't like it, and it doesn't serve me right now, and it just makes me angry. And I haven't made friends with it yet. Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever make friend like real, real friends with it. I will say, even when I'm doing it poorly, like I am in that." that chapter you're talking about where I have the dialogue between my brain and the guided meditation, even when I'm doing it poorly, I do feel some benefit. I can tell when I get cocky and I stop doing my meditation for a few weeks, I can tell I'm irritated. I have a shorter fuse. There is something about it that works on some subconscious level, even when I'm sitting there going, this is not working and it's stupid and it's a waste of 10 minutes and I just want to fall asleep. It does something. I, I don't know how it works, yeah. but it does. So yeah. I, I keep coming back to it, even though I never get better at it. Yeah, I feel like I get that a little bit with free writing. Like if I, if I put like a five minute timer on and just write like, I hate this, this is dumb, everything <laughs> I write is terrible. And then by the end of it, I'm like, not bad, not bad. Right. I feel a little lighter. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, are, what are the ages of your kids now? I mean, they're they're grown, really. My oldest is about to turn 20. My youngest just turned 17. Oh That's how goodness. old my tiny, tiny infant children are. They're, <laughs> they're both taller than me, and they're practically adults. So it's it's weird. In my yeah. head, they're like six and three. Forever. But in reality, they are young adults. Yeah. No, yeah, forever. It is very, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, my, my stepdaughters are 20 and 17 at this mm-hmm. point. So yeah, it's, yeah, I'm just like, ah, those are interesting ages too, because it's like, you're, you're kind of still a teenager, but you're not like a 13, 14 year old. You're more mm-hmm. of an adult than that, but you're not like a totally altogether adult adult, you know, your frontal lobe is not formed all the way. Oh, it is not still. It is not. <laughs> and I feel like that is something that needs to be discussed more <laughs> like that. I have had so much grace for myself in my early 20s specifically and my decision making abilities at that point when I go, oh, oh my, my brain God. wasn't fully formed yet. Right. There was still like this gray matter there hanging out and it wasn't all the way like it wasn't completed. Right. I saw something so funny the other day. I wish I could give credit to, to whoever wrote this down and put it on Instagram or whatever, but I don't know where it came from. It said, who is the worst person you've ever met in your life? And why is it the person you dated when you were 19? Like, <laughs> like why, why oh, is it that man. when you're like 19, 20, 21, you just think you've got it so together and you so don't. Yeah. But I mean, we know now we can so look true. back and give ourselves a little forgiveness. A little forgiveness. Yes. Um, well, I, all that to say is because you're also on the precipice of an, what they call an empty nest. Mm-hmm. What I have found recently is when things are at like the highest level of chaos and panic, I crush it. Really? I'm like, I thrive operating at that speed. Yeah. I just go into task mode. What what can we do? You know, like mm-hmm. I can just get everything done. And it's when every it's like the more minor inconveniences mm-hmm. that just like are are poking, you know, when the rug gets completely pulled out from underneath, like I can yeah. I can be like, okay, hold on, I'll go I'll go find a new rug. I can fix it. I can fix right. it. I can fix it. Right. But it's the post it's af- the after effect of that. And so I didn't know if, you know, I know that you go into discussing what happened after, you know, your son got received his diagnosis and mm-hmm. and also, you know, your experience as a, as a parent through that and um, and what may maybe that trajectory for you was or even within your lo- own life, other circumstances in mm-hmm. which, you know, in the moment of chaos, you know that there's things to get done. There's doctor's appointments yeah. to be made. There's things to research. There's, you know, people to call, uh, you know, pharmacies to yell at. There's all these things that you have to yes. get done. And then all of a sudden, when everything's finally somewhat stable after that, that is when, That's when I you fall, fall apart. apart. I mean... That is so well said. There's, you probably remember, there's a chapter in Bomb Shelter where I talk about 
um, having to go down or not having to, getting to, getting to go down and look after my parents when my dad had a, a emergency out of the blue need for a triple bypass, which is a major open heart. Is that open heart? Mm-hmm. At least open chest. Can you tell I'm not even a doctor? Even if they go, no, my, my dad's a heart surgeon, actually. Okay. So even well, if they don't go. go through the open chest cavity, it's usually for a bypass. I mean, I he's got a scar like he's been zipped up with a zipper. So it was, yes, a, it, it was, was big, an open, full open heart surgery. Yeah, yeah. Big surgery, the kind where they're like, we don't know if he's going to make it out the other side. And my mom called crying. And, um, you know, it was this sort of thing where I got the call here in Nashville. They live in, in South Georgia. And I was like, I'm getting in my car now. And I was speeding, you know, trying to get there in hopes of seeing my dad alive. And he survived the surgery. But the, you know, the aftermath of that surgery is really intense. And it's it's it was a season, a very brief season of life, a matter of days, really, or weeks, where my parents just were not my parents. It was almost like they were my children again. And I had to take care of them. And that is exactly like what you just described. I was like, I am superwoman. I can do this. I can feed them and clean out their refrigerator and get my dad to the doctor. And I'm going to learn how these heart drugs work. And, I, you know, I can be superwoman in that moment. But it was when I left to come back home and my flight was delayed, like a small thing, a delayed flight. I sat in the airport and cried all the tears that probably had just been stored up the whole time I was there. And that does. You and I are alike in that in that way. You know, that time with my parents um, after my son first got sick and, and we were going through all the doctors and trying to figure out what to do in those super intense moments, I can be, I mean, I can be Sally Field in Steel Magnolias. I can pull it together and, and not fall apart. But it is, yeah, it's later when like you spill your coffee in the kitchen and that's what makes you sob. Yes. That's, that's what gets me. I know. It's funny. It is. I know. It's the it's the feeling of the feelings, but I'd rather I'd rather be able to plan when I can feel them. Like, hey, this is an appropriate time. <laughs> that's why I think. That's why I fully believe. If I were a politician, I would campaign on this. I fully believe airports should have crying lounges yes. because airports, for so many people, are that in between time when you've just come from somewhere or you're on your way somewhere and you have this little suspended in between moment to let the feelings catch up to you. I, I cry in airports so often. I see other people crying in airports. There needs to be a crying lounge in every airport where you just go and there's Kleenex and there's big sunglasses and maybe there's like therapy dogs and you can just <laughs> let it all out and get what you need and fix your mascara and then go back out to the world and hold it together again. I mean, I think Southwest is definitely in need of some good PR at this moment. This is a great <laughs> idea for them. I think That's, they could that thrive might be just on this. What they need. They it might will rehabilitate exactly their image. Be what they need. Um, well, this is also just like a minor. I have I have an, other questions I want to get to, but yeah. just, just before I forget, I think that knowledge is power, and when we've had a traumatic experience, the ability to share um, something, especially a health crisis, yeah. um, what anyone can do if this ever, if they find themselves in it. So just before I forget, because I don't want to, if anyone is ever in the presence of someone having a seizure, what do they do? Okay. That is a great question. So first, before you're in the presence of someone with a seizure, everybody take a minute, go visit the Epilepsy Foundation's website. They have wonderful uh, first aid little like signs and tips and things that you could use that you could like post on the bulletin board at your workplace, for example. But the main thing is if you see someone having a seizure, um, you stay with them 
You don't go, oh, no, and run away. <laughs> so stay okay. with them. Um, keep them safe. So if there's something sharp around them or they were holding a pencil at the time they fell or whatever, get sharp things away. Um, if they're down on the ground, turn them on their side. Stay safe side. Those are the three things. Forgive me, Epilepsy Foundation, if I got that wrong. Um, there are so many kinds of epilepsy. Epilepsy just means has seizures. It's not like it's one disease or one syndrome. There's so many different kinds. And um, you never know if you're out in public whether what you're witnessing is like a seizure that's been brought on by something else. So if you're in public and you see someone having a seizure, I think it is okay to call 911. But people who have the type of epilepsy that my son has, who who may have seizures, you know, not just once in their life, they actually know not to call 911 because you don't need to waste a whole ambulance drive over something that's only going to be a couple of minutes and then you're going to be fine. And as long as it doesn't go on over five minutes, he's in good shape. So there's so many different types of things that cause seizures and, and and things to know about it. But the main thing is just, you know, don't don't run away. Don't stick anything in somebody's mouth. I think it, there must have been like a movie or something in the 70s where someone had a seizure and somebody put There's something to hold down their tongue. Down. Right. Yeah, they, yeah, so they don't like I don't know where bite that came their from, tongue or swallow their yeah, tongue or something I think like pe- that. Yeah. I think people still think that's a thing. So they're like, you know, hold their tongue. To, you don't need to do anything to anybody's yeah. tongue. Okay. <laughs> just... <laughs> just, you know, help them be comfortable and stay with them until they wake up. Well, thank you. I think it's especially you just, again, you never know Mm-mm. when a tornado is going to go off. So you just need to be prepared. Right. Um, how is your son today? He's great. He's Good. great. You know, he's like six foot one. He's my tiny little baby boy who is <laughs> huge and out there in the world. He's a college student. He's doing great. Oh, my oldest uh, uh, daughter, biological daughter, uh, turned seven <gasps> this past week, oh. and um, and I also you your you have a your daughter um, mm-hmm. had asthma from a young age or grew up with asthma. Yes, and my daughter is also asthmatic, and that oh. was another you know scary. Yeah, that's been a scary trajectory as a parent, yes. and just in having that's to learn. That's another thing that sneaks up terrifying. on you. Yes. Like it's the the wheezing can kind of start fast and escalate quickly do you have inhalers just like all over the your inhalers, house inhalers <laughs> we've got the stare the albuterol we've got the you know the um what's it called the, the nebulizer the, the nebulizer yes. oh man and there was a period of time I mean I at this point I could walk into an ER and they could be like she needs this and I'd be like no 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 don't do that do this this and this this does not work we've tried it a million times you know I there was a point luckily she's on a good medication now but where she was we were I was in the emergency room a couple times oh a year gosh. at like yep. three four in the morning and yeah, it's, it's always at three in the morning always at three in the morning <laughs> but that's the stuff on that, a weekend like, it's yes. never like noon on a tuesday <laughs> no but that is the part like just what's so funny <laughs> i mean and look I, I i do think all this to say is you you do never know what's going to be the difficult part of parenting but i do think we can all agree that parenting we just know it's going to be hard like it you know doesn't it's going to be hard you just know it's going to be hard and recently i was around a few moms and someone was like you know no one talks about it no one talks about how hard it is. And I was like, really? <laughs> Nobody talks about it? I the, think I, the thing like, is, oh. everyone's talking about it, but you don't know what to listen to until you know what you need. Like, yes. I, when I was pregnant, I read all these books. 
you probably did this too. You know, oh, now it's God, the internet. You but, know I did. You know, you where know, it's like, anime garden. I was right. highlighting what to expect. Oh, yeah. Because you know at that point exactly where you are on the timeline of this. You're like, right now we're in utero. And the next things that happen, the next thing that's going to happen is birth. So you prepare for that. But as you go, and this is really not just parenthood, this is life in general, things really start to diversify <laughs> and you don't know what's coming next. And and you can't prepare. So like I remember saying a couple of years ago when my my firstborn left for college, like no one talks about how hard this is. And then I was like, wait a minute. I think there's like a billion articles about this. I just didn't read them really or pay attention to them because I didn't know I was going to have such a hard time with it. I thought I would just be like, yay, congrats. See ya. Like I didn't know I was going to be so upended by the child leaving the house. But if if I had known, I would have gone and gotten, you know, what to expect when you're expecting them to leave. <laughs> but, you know, you you kind of don't know what you need to be paying attention to. But I, I understand your friend who was like, no one talks about this. Maybe she just hadn't heard people talking about it before because she didn't need it before. And now yeah. she does. And she yeah. needs everybody to talk about it all the time. And everyone talks about it all the time. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and should because that's what, you know, sharing information, I think, is what makes people feel less alone and yes. makes them realize that there are options. There's not just one way of doing anything, especially raising yeah. kids or giving birth or right. feeling a certain way about raising kids or giving birth. Right. And sometimes somebody puts something into words that gives you such peace. Like, this is why this is why I read. And it's also why I write. Um that feeling of having that sort of staticky feeling in your head where you're like, something is upsetting me, something is hard, something is difficult, and I don't know how to put into words what it feels like. And then you either read somewhere or someone says to you something that just crystallizes it. It's the greatest relief. It's like, yes, you named it. That's what I feel. Mm -hmm. Even though the circumstance hasn't changed, I feel better because I know what to call it now. That's why talking about all this stuff is good because even if you don't change anything about what's going on, even if you can't, you know, control what's going on, having words for it and knowing you're not alone makes a big difference. Have you always been a writer? Yes, but not professionally. I became a professional writer in my 20s. But even like, I mean, if you dialed the, you know, our magical time machine that we don't have, if you dialed that back to any time in my life, you would see me working out my difficulties in writing like that's how I how I get any sense of control over my emotions is by trying to put them on paper and just make order out of the chaos uh what were you doing before you were a professional writer so I come from a family of doctors I come from a scientific family and so I assumed in this really non-creative way, I just looked up the family tree. I was like, oh, doctors, okay, that's what I'll be. And so I went to college thinking I would be pre-med. I actually started out pre-med and then I took chemistry. <laughs> I took chemistry, <laughs> actually took chemistry and calculus the same semester. And that was the end of my pre-med dreams <laughs> because they were so hard. But also, it wasn't just that they were hard and I, I gave up. They were hard in the kind of way that, you know, sometimes something is hard. And you're like, this is hard, but I'm going to get through it to get what I want. It was more like, this is hard. And you know what? I don't actually want this enough to try to get through this. Yeah. I, it's like I've, I got to college away from my household and away from my own family and finally had a minute to look around and go, I don't think I want to be what everyone else is in my family. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what I would be because I had never looked around and really paid attention to what other things were out there. So um, 
I ended up, I applied to law school my senior year of college. I applied to the first four law schools who sent me brochures in the mail. That's how much my heart was in it. I was Mm -hmm. like, one, two, three, four, sounds good. (laughs) Check, check, check. Right. (laughs) Applied to those, got into those, got to the part where it was like, now you have to pick where you're going. And again, I got that feeling of, I don't even want this enough to make this decision. And so that was spring of my senior year. I wrote to the law schools and said, no, I'm not coming. I walked down to the careers office at my college and I was like, hi, I'm aimless and graduating in two months. What do you have? And they were like, we have one more company still doing interviews on campus. Would you like to interview with them? And I said, yes. And I walked out and then I walked back in and I said, wait, what is it? And they said, it's Accenture, which is, you know, like software consulting. All these years later, still couldn't really tell you what it is. I was an English major, by the way. (laughs) And I went on the internet, the brand new baby internet that just barely existed at that time, and looked up, what is consulting? (laughs) What is this company? And learned the way you learn a script. I learned the language to use in the interview so that I could ace the interview and get the job because I was so terrified of graduating and not knowing what I was, you know, like everyone talks about what are you going to be when you get out of school? And I thought if I don't have a job or a career or a big life dream, what am I? And so I was like, well, I'm a consultant. And I went and did that for a few years. And I, the just the whole time, I'm sure, mm, just whole time I was there, (laughs) had no idea what I was doing. I met so many smart people. I still have friends from that company. It is a great place to work. And I think it is probably even greater if you do know what you're doing, which I never did. Um, And so in my mid 20s, I left that job and I started that was my first writing job was when I left Accenture and I went to work in corporate communications for a hospital. So my really, my first writing job was like brochures and patient information materials, like what to do in case of a seizure. Wow. And all that little stuff that I wrote in my mid-20s, like stored away in my brain somewhere. That's how I knew what to do the morning I found my son on the ground. That bubbled up from like the recesses of my brain. It was like, put something soft under his head. Stay with him, you know. So it was a journey. (laughs) Yeah. to where I am now. <laughs> yeah, it all it always is. Do you think this generation of teenagers and, and young adults um, that have yet to have fully formed brains, uh, <laughs> anyone under 25, basically, do you think that they have, um, that they feel the same pressures we did to know what we were going to do and know what oh, we were going to be? I hope not. I will say as a as a parent and as a friend to younger people and as, you know, a aunt and a, you know, my mom's friend, Mary Laura kind of person to young people, I try as hard as I can to give that message that, first of all, what you do for a living is not what you are. So it's not like you are a waiter and you are an actor and you are, you know, you are you and then you have a job. Or or calling or you know whatever it is for you that that your work does for you, um, but I hope I hope they don't feel that pressure. When I talk to people, my peers, about that phase of life, and we get to the subject of like regrets and what do we wish we had done differently, I feel like the most common answer is I wish I had given myself some time to wander around a little bit and try a few different things, and that I didn't feel this urgency to like graduate and then be a professional, a very serious professional on a track. 
the job market has obviously changed a great deal in the time since I was that age. So I think partly, and this is maybe not good, although maybe there's a silver lining to it, partly young adults these days can't feel that pressure to instantly find their lifetime career because it's hard to find a job. So they're having to be a little more open-minded and a little more creative about what they do. Um, I don't know. I hope they don't feel that same pressure. It was so silly when I think back to like me and all my 22-year-old friends who went out and bought our first suit that we wore every day to work because we could only afford one suit. Like, what were we doing wearing suits when we were 22? <laughs> yeah. I, I I mean, that's when I got the show that I was on. I was 22 years old. Yes. And, and you were like... I know. I look like back now, and I'm just like a little baby. And yes. and then and then you. But that that was definitely a very interesting come down. You know, realizing how much of my identity was wrapped up in in that one job. Yes. And so, therefore, I am worthy because I am. You know, this. And if you yeah. remove that, then what am I? And who am I? And so, yep. same. Even with you know any young people that are like, well, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm like, great. <laughs> That's a great place to start. Do lots, you do, do lots, lots of things. Of things. With your You're life. not supposed to know, and and it evolves. And and oh, and for you. So when you started writing professionally, obviously mm-hmm. you got past the point of just writing hospital pamphlets yes, on safety, yes. <laughs> yes. of course. Um, but <laughs> what I think is like, did you feel pressure within your industry? to ha- to achieve a certain amount by a certain time because to me I romanticize you know the literature um indus- the industry of of mm-hmm. being an author or writer as there is no you know time limit that is set that there that you can find success at such different decades and points of life yes. and they all mean something yeah well and that is that's totally true in a way that maybe is different from, you know, the business that, that you came from. Like when you are, when you're acting and you, and people are seeing your face and your body and they're very aware of your age. And, and I'm just kind of getting my mind around this because my daughter is, is an actor and, and she's looking toward being in that business. So I'm trying to wrap my mind around how it works and how, how valuable or how valuable seeming maybe youth is Mm -hmm. in that business. And writing is different because, you know, other than like right now, you can see me on a screen, but other people are just hearing my voice. And most of the time they're just reading my words on a piece of paper. So my age has very little to do with, you know, what you're taking in in terms of my words. But there is, so there's this kind of a segment of the creative writing world that is very, literary and it's these it's the people who go to like get their MFA in their 20s and they want to be on the you know what is it like the five people under 30 best writers list there is a segment I think of the creative writing world where youth is really prized Uh, but I wasn't in that part of it you know I I was writing like corporate stuff in my 20s and then when I was in my 30s I was writing uh, pieces for newspapers and magazines like single like a one at a time essay or op-ed um, and that doesn't have the same kind of competitive nature to it and by the time I was writing whole books under my own name I was in my 40s 
so I'd kind of sidestepped the whole <laughs> the whole phase of life where I might have felt like I've got to hurry up and do that. I missed the part where you hurry. <laughs> I didn't really, you know, have have books out under my name until I was after that that stage. So I don't feel that as much, um, and I'm grateful for that. Like I, you know, I'm in a phase of life now where um, the hardcover of Bomb Shelter came out last year in 2022. The paperback is coming out this year in 2023. It's going to have a really cute, splashy cover. Um, but I don't feel a huge rush to have the next book like going and ready. I feel very comfortable with the idea of you know I'm in a season right now where I think I think I I need to let my brain rest a little bit. And see what bubbles up next. And I don't feel a terrible, you know, crushing hurry about that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you write every day or in the time of rest, do you allow yourself to just experience as opposed to put it on That's the That's a good question. In, these, in a time of rest like right now, this is probably one of the only times where I don't write every single day. I still come pretty close. And most of the time I do write every day. It's not always on a book. Like sometimes I'm writing, you know, I write other things. I write book reviews. I write, I still write articles and essays and things like that. Sometimes the thing I'm writing is just a single paragraph. Like I'm writing a blurb for somebody's book or I'm writing a, you know, people contact me all the time to say, can you write a little something? So I'm usually doing something with words every day, even if it's not a, a big project that I'm working on. But this, like this particular week, I didn't write today and I haven't burst into flames. So it seems to be okay. <laughs> we'll see. There's you no know, tornadoes me, outside yet. We'll right. see. You got to like, check so Nashville So far, effects. so good. I think it's okay to take a break sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> I know that's really hard for me. I can only do that during Christmas. Like That's for me, like celebrate Christmas and I, I celebrate Christmas and, and we do. And, and so, but what's funny is my version of a break then is mm-hmm. also like buying gifts, wrapping things, decorating, making cookies. Like it's not, right. so it's restful. not an actual break <laughs> right. at all. Right. That week <laughs> like, between, that week between Christmas and New Year's. Oh, it's perfect. 
It can be. <laughs> it's probably not perfect when you have a tiny baby. It is I, perfect. Look, I, I have a tiny baby. I, I'm I'm in a in a life transition right yes, now. Yes. You know of of <laughs> you know divorce and separation, and mm-hmm. so it's it's all it's all and it, like this is like a really I know in like five years I'm gonna look back and be like mm, that was the yummy stuff where I learned <laughs> and grew, and now I'm just like this is bullshit. Like I you know what? <laughs> even if you look back in five years and you go that was bullshit. That is okay because some seasons just are bullshit. I mean, yeah. I love the whole, I love your whole uh, botanical metaphor for this, you know, seasons of life where you have a super bloom after a big rain. That, mm-hmm. That's real. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I meant it when I, I opened this podcast. Um, the very first episode is kind of an essay that I wrote called In the Dirt. And it just said mm-hmm. that, that this is where we're starting. I am deep, deep in the soil matrix. And that's <laughs> that's cool. That is yeah. absolutely OK. Um as far as other writers go, and I know you mentioned like sometimes people ask like for blurbs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I love so many of the the writers who wrote blurbs on your book and like Glennon Aww. Doyle, you got Tembi Locke, um, Lori Gottlieb or Gottlieb. I might have messed up her last name, but I love all of them. And do you, is there like an amazing, like I just picture that you guys all just like call each other up and be like, hey, need anything? <laughs> Can I read anything for you? That it's like this... <laughs> Awesome group of like cool badass women. <laughs> yeah, we just have a group text. No, yeah. I um as you were talking, I p- I picked up my copy of Bomb Shelter to look at the back, P- and periodically I do look at this and just go, "Holy smokes, this yeah. is amazing that I know these people." And what's really neat is I actually do know all these people. Like th- none of these were just strangers that you know that like my publisher reached out to for a blurb or anything. Like these are all actually people I know. I mean Maggie Smith, the poet. Um, who also, by the way, has a memoir coming out um, this spring in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's a smart lady. These are smart yeah. people. Yeah. Danny Shapiro. I mean, these are, this is sort of, uh, yes. you know, you can go through, and you maybe are this way as well with your work, like seasons of life where you're like, oh, you get used to things. You kind of acclimate to where you are and you're like, it's not that special. It's not that big a deal, whatever. I'm just going to work. Mm -hmm. Every now and then I do try to kind of step back and go, is this real? Like, this is my real work. This is my job. These wonderful writers are people that I know who are my friends. I love it. It it is important to do that. And you should love it. And it is Except when I hate it, but mostly I know (laughs) Except when I hate my job, I love my job. <laughs> well, I'm still going to picture in the back of my mind, you guys are just on like the coolest group chat that's like named <laughs> like with some literary pun. Um, did you did you watch From Scratch, by the way? The show. Do you know what? Time? I've been saving. So I obviously have read the book actually multiple times. I've been saving the show because I want to like binge watch it every night. And mm-hmm. I haven't yet had a week that is that. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking like when my kids go off, like when my daughter goes off to summer school for acting this summer, and maybe my son goes off to do whatever he does in the summer, be a camp counselor or whatever. I'll have like that perfect week. So, but I don't want to wait that long. I've been saving it is my answer. And I haven't done it yet. And I'm dying to. Everyone I know who's watched it said it's great. Yeah, I, I did not know. Like all I knew about it was funny enough, the the um, actress and she's a really she's always been a fantastic writer. Um, Marguerite McIntyre. Um, she played my mother on the show that I was on The Vampire Diaries. Yeah. She played the role of Sheriff Forbes. Well, she's like the executive producer, like running. She wrote 
Really? Yeah, on the show from scratch. And so she was just like, yeah, it like Tembi Locke and it's going to be really beautiful. And then they were in Italy, obviously, making the show. And I just yes. was like, oh, this is so sweet. And then I saw the poster board and I was like, this is going to be so great. Like, I knew nothing about it except it was like Italy and... Oh. And, and, oh, and from scratch, I was like, oh my gosh, it's off. like a cooking love story in Italy is what I went into <laughs> thinking it was. So you didn't have Kleenex with you or oh anything? Oh my God, my, my children were with their with their dad and I had like a few days of just, you know, what am I going to do? And so I was like, oh, I'll start this cute Italian mm-hmm. cooking rom-com series. Right. And I was like, you <laughs> destroyed me. And I knew I could literally the second that any like kind of monologue started, I'd be like, oh, I knew she wrote this episode. I knew she wrote this part because I know that killing me. You have to go back, even though you know what happens now, go back and read, read the, the memoir. Yeah. Because Tembi is she's a, a really lovely writer. And, you know, I mean, obviously she and her sister Attica worked on the writing of the show. But of course, yeah, yeah, read yeah. the do read the memoir, too. It's really good. I'm so excited to read it. Um, but yes, be ready when you, it's it's such a beautiful telling of of Tembi um, Tembi's story and and uh, not to give anything away at all because actually I think it is really powerful when you go in not knowing anything. So don't even <laughs> Google like, it if you don't know what you're we're talking like, about. Beautiful Italian rom com. Just, yeah, just watch this <laughs> fantastic Italian rom com. Maybe with bring a box show. of Kleenex. Maybe, Maybe bring some Kleenex just to dab. Yeah. Um, but it really is. Uh, I I am encouraged because I I do feel the fact that also we're in this new. For me, I lived in LA for a while. I lived in Atlanta. Um, I always had this thought, like, in order to be an actor and be in a certain industry, you have to live in a place because that is where the industry is. And that exists for a handful of industries in the world. Sometimes you have to live somewhere because that is where you have to live for your job. Mm -hmm. For for my industry, you can now live anywhere you want. It is so much of it is online and Zoom and you're able to just fly in and out, you know, or be flown in and out for things. Mm -hmm. But for you as well and for your industry, there is no, you have to be in this one city. You don't have to live in New York to write for a magazine and be published by this literary author, um, you know, or this uh, publishing company. You can Mm -hmm. really live wherever you want to be. And so even just to see this collection of incredible writers on the back of your book and and know even here in Nashville, um, like the the bookshop Parnassus, you know. Yeah, Parnassus. Did I say Parnassus, thank you. Yeah. Parnassus. You know, I go in there and I just feel like there's just such a camaraderie and a community yeah. of writers in this town. It's well, it's it, there you're right. There is a wonderful community of writers in this town. Um, but one of the the beautiful parts of you know, the online world, which certainly has its dark sides, you know, the internet and social media and all that has its problems, but you can live anywhere now and be a creative person and have a community of fellow creative people that you can talk to anytime. Like some of my best writer friends are people that, you know, if I see them at all, I maybe see them once a year or once every two or three years. If we happen to be, you know, going to the same book festival and staying in the same hotel and getting a pizza. I'm thinking of Lori Gottlieb. We ate pizza at a hotel bar once. Um, but because we can connect online and then, you know, it, you get to know people and then you have your little text threads or whatever. I do feel like I have a community of writers and writer friends and they're everywhere and I do love that. And it's I'm I'm actually really it makes me happy to hear you say that it's the same way for acting now. Cause I I really thought it was like you either live in New York or you live in LA and 
So that's neat that you can live other places and still be doing it. Yeah, I've only ever filmed one thing in LA or twice in my whole career. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Um, I, I, yeah. So you you really don't need to live anywhere. Um, As I also anyone listening to this who is because I think it's important to hear that even if especially as women, mothers, parents, or wherever you find yourself in life, just because you're not 20 and at the, you know, at the start of figuring out what your career is going to be, I think it's important for women to hear in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even beyond, that Mm -hmm. you can start then. There is no, there's no expiration date to starting something new or following a new career path. And even for me, if when I hear other women say, I think I kind of want to go do this like improv class, or I think I want to start a comedy, or I think I want to start a podcast. I'm like, great, go do it. it. Just do it. Do it. The older you are, the more sense you have anyway. I I mean, I cannot tell you, especially with um, my the book that came before this was called I Miss You When I Blink. And and something about that book, which was, it's also a memoir, and it's very much anchored in my kind of mid to late 30s. But something about that book hit a chord with readers in their late 20s. It, it really kind of caught on with readers who were like 28, 29 for some reason. And I got so much reader mail, like emails and direct messages and things from people going, I'm about to turn 30 and I'm just having an absolute crisis because I don't know who I am and I don't know what my life is going to be. There is this crisis point that seems to hit people, especially women, right when you turn 30. And every single time, and I've tried to write back to every person who ever writes to me, but every time I wrote back, I would be like, no, this is great that you're still figuring things out at 30. You can still be figuring things out at 40. The The beauty of once you get over this hump of, I've got to know what I'm doing by this point. Once you get past it and you realize, oh, wait, no one knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Really, no one knows what they're doing. You look around and you think people do, but they don't. And once you get past that little panic that we all have at some time, and maybe it's when we're 29 or maybe it's when we're 37 or whatever, you can kind of relax into the the ebb and the flow of like trying some new things, but also mastering some things you're good at and and getting further and deeper into some crafts or businesses, but then making a pivot and doing something else. You start to realize that people are reinventing always. So there's no like, there's no age at which it's like, well, I hope you've gotten successful by now because if you're not, it's over. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I do. I do. Look, there are there's definitely been moments where I'm like, interesting choice, Madonna. But then I'm, I want to smack <laughs> myself and be like, let Madonna be Madonna. Madonna gonna Madonna. She's Madonna's gonna, do gonna it. Madonna. And then we have to we have to Madonna. Like, right. why never stop Madonnaing? Like, we just right. gotta keep reinventing or Taylor Swifting or Taylor know? Swifting. The Every album after is different. Era after era. So I love that. Well, I could talk to you all day long, but I do want to end. There's this little kind of like, I got it from a writing course I took, actually. So it's just kind of word association. I'm going to ask you five questions. Oh, gosh. Okay. Just the first thing you think of. Okay. Okay. Something that you like. I'm going to be honest. The first word that came to my mind was cheese. Okay, perfect. uh, Cheese. You said something that you liked. My brain was like, cheese. Love it. Done. (laughs) Something that you know. Oh, I know that I have no control over most things. Something that you hate. Something that I hate. 
celery. Why am I thinking about food? I think I'm hungry, but I hate celery. It ruins everything. I hate it. <laughs> Something it's that gross. you love that's not your family or pets or anything like that. Something that I love that's not my family or pets. Um, I love the outdoors. The older that I get, the more I find myself wanting to protect it and wanting to undo what humanity has done to it. I love the outdoors. I may be also saying that because I'm sitting in front of a window. I'm looking at trees. <laughs> and a quirky little fact about you. A quirky fact about me. Um, oh, here's one. Uh, last year, when my first child left for college and I needed something to occupy my brain really intensely so that I would stop thinking about how sad I was that he wasn't here, I started going to pottery school twice a week. I'm not still going, although I would like to get back to it. I had to take a break to go on book tour last year, but I was in it for several months. And I thought what I was going to do was take, um, figure out how to use that pottery wheel, you know, like mm -hmm. they do in Ghost. Oh, yeah. And it turns out that that makes me really dizzy and kind of sick. And so I had to stop doing that and instead do a little hand building with clay. And I started making teeny tiny clay turtles, like the size of a golf ball. And it brought, I mean, I just never in my life saw that coming, but it brought me more joy than just about anything I've done in recent years. And I love all my little clay turtles. I and I the love your theme of turtles because that's what's on the cover right? of your book, Bomb Shelter. And also there's, you have an essay talking about um, turtles as well, yeah. or it, there's a theme. Anyway, Mary Laura, thank you so much. It's thank so lovely you. to meet you. I hope that we bump into each other in Nashville sometime. I that would be know. wonderful. Well, you're so kind to invite me to, to talk. I really appreciate it. I love what you're doing. Well, I appreciate your time, truly. Thank you. This has been a Super Boom podcast, hosted by me, Candace King, produced by Melissa D. Mons and Diamond Imprint Productions. Post-production sound by Chris Henry and advertisement partnerships with ACAST.